morning, church. We are in week three of our sermon series that we're calling Artisan Soul. And we are exploring this biblical idea of beauty. We're also discovering that God has designed all of us uh, to be artists with the ability to create something beautiful. That is, every action we take, the love that we show, uh, every relationship that we build uh, has the capacity, the potential to become something meaningful and inspiring and hopefully pointing people towards Christ. God has put creativity within each of us, whether you admit it or not. And we are called to create something beautiful with our lives. Now, I know most of you, maybe many of you, including myself, are thinking right now, no, (laughs) not so much. I'm not an artist. But if you're a human, and most of us here today are, You're an artist. You are made in the image of God. You are made to create and to appreciate beauty. And I believe that it can actually change the world as as much as goodness and truth. And our Christian calling is not only to to fill this world with goodness, but also with, with beauty. We all have beauty. We all have value. We have worth. And what an impact this This one belief has had on the world. It has unleashed social uh, movements. It has brought about change. And I think it has even brought some revolutions. We've also been learning about the beauty of imagination and how God has created us to dream of impossible things. We've also learned there's a paradox about beauty. And that is, like everything else, we don't always agree on what beauty is. I shared a couple weeks ago that one of the things that I love is the smell of freshly cut hay. But for others of us, it only triggers sneezing and your hay fever. That there's some music that every time I hear it can move me to tears. And yet for others, it only irritates you. And so sometimes this leads us to say things like, Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Meaning, of course, that it's simply a relative thing. There's no objective standard for beauty. And we might even find that today in our topic, which we've entitled The Beauty of the Cross. You see, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote this. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What Paul was recognizing is simply this, that that some people saw the cross as an ugly failure, while other people saw it as a beautiful triumph. Well, it was the Persians who invented crucifixion, but it was the Romans who perfected it. In fact, they used it for some 800 years until it was abolished by the Emperor Constantine in the 4th century A.D. And it had one purpose, and that was to strike fear into the hearts of the people. 
It was an instrument of torture, and it was a terrifying death, and those who witnessed it were not inclined thereafter to violate Roman law. Uh, the Roman Seneca said this, that if you knew there was a likelihood that you would be arrested and crucified, that it was much better to simply commit suicide. Uh, another Roman Cicero called it the extreme and ultimate punishment and the cruelest and most disgusting of all penalties. You see, before they nailed their victims to the cross, they would flog them. And the point was to, maxim, was to inflict maximum pain and damage, but to leave just enough strength, just enough to carry the cross to the site. You see, the, the whip the Romans used was called the flagrum, and it was made of leather braided with bits of stone and glass and, and metal that was designed to rip apart the flesh. And they would always do this along a main road where everyone would be sure to see it. You see, the, the vertical cross was left in place at the site, and the criminal, after they were flogged, carried the cross beam, which could carry some, which would weigh some eight, or would weigh some 100 pounds. The victims were typically left hanging uh, on the cross, or their bodies would be taken down and left on the ground near the cross until animals were finished with eating them. Some of the bodies were placed on a trash heap, and bones simply uh, may have been scattered unless the family members came to claim them. And we often imagine Jesus as being high up in the, in the air on the cross, but most crosses were not that high. They were only two or three feet off the ground. And so those who were gathered around Christ, the soldiers, his mother Mary and John, could, could look right into his eyes as they spoke to him. And the goal was simple. It was to inflict the maximum agony for the longest possible time. And so it might be days before they died. Now sometimes the Romans would, would break their legs with an iron bar to expedite their death. And it seems that that made it harder for them to, to rise up and exhale. You see, hanging on a cross, it made it very difficult to breathe. Breathing became more and more shallow so that crucifixion really was a slow death by asphyxiation. And so Jesus, bloody, beaten, and naked, hung that way for six hours. How can we call that a beautiful cross? What is interesting is that we see in the prophecies of Isaiah passages that seem to point to a crucifixion, to Jesus' death. We find in chapter 50 these words, The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I have offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Uh, this is the first of several chapters in Isaiah that are referred to as the suffering servant narrative of Isaiah. And it seems to be pointing to, 
to the nation of Judah, personified in this figure of a suffering servant. But the verses also seem to be pointing beyond a a nation to what Jesus experienced. And so early Christians read this prophecy, and and they saw it as as what happened to Jesus. The Jewish people would read it, and and they interpret it as, as to them, referring to them as a suffering nation. But when Jesus' followers read it after the resurrection, they interpreted it as referring to Christ. In chapter 53, we read these words. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Verse 4, For surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Now Isaiah says that this is the person that is to deliver the nation of Judah. But what weak person could possibly do that? No beauty, no majesty, despised and rejected. I mean, this is not how a a conqueror, this is not how a deliverer acts or looks. Everybody knows that they are dominating, that they are forceful, that they are attractive people who convince others to do what they want them to do. And if they choose not to do what the deliverer wants, then they are crushed. All who refuse to follow their leadership are put down. And so this picture painted by Isaiah is the very opposite of what you and I are looking for in our hero. It doesn't make sense. But it reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? Who stood before Pilate, no thought of escape, no self-preservation, That he would not contend with his accusers. He would not defend himself. He would not plead with the judge. In short, he did nothing to stop the unjust execution that was being orchestrated against him. In fact, Jesus went quietly and willingly to the cross. And remember his words when he said, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. We see him on the cross, tortured and bleeding. We see him mocked and taunted. We see him misrepresented and misunderstood. And yet he chooses not to retaliate. He neither attacked others nor did he defend himself. He did not seek rescue or revenge. And then we see the Apostle Paul write these words in Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, he's talking to you and me. He says, in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Jesus. What mindset? He goes on. 
who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so what Paul is saying here is that the cross is, is the culminating act of self-emptying love. And that you and I, we are created to reflect this nature and this character of God. So that means that you and I are most human when we are humble. You see, Jesus turns humility into something that is beautiful. Now, we thought that he was being punished for his sins and failures. But Isaiah clearly says in verse 4 that it's for us, that he suffered for us, that Jesus' suffering and death was not an accident. You see, the cohort of soldiers stripped him naked. They brought him a robe, and they, they draped it over his shoulders. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. They, they gave him this reed as a scepter, and they shouted, Hail, King of the Jews! They circled around him and they spit upon him and they struck him in the face. The thing is, Jesus could have destroyed them all with a single word. And so in this, in the cross, Jesus demonstrates a, a love that refuses to give in to vengeance. The cross demonstrates the full extent of Jesus' self-sacrifice. Jesus has set an example to us of a kind of love that has the power to save us from our own self-destructive ways. That sacrificial love transforms our enemies into friends. It shames the guilty into repentance, and it can melt our hearts of stone. In 2004... In November, Tammy Duckworth, a reservist in the U.S. Army, was called up to Iraq. She was a co-pilot in a helicopter. And while she was on patrol, a rocket-propelled grenade exploded inside at her feet. And by the time that the helicopter crash-landed, it appeared to all who were also on board that she was dead. Now, the soldiers knew the enemy would be on their way to the crash site, and, and if they were captured, they knew they would be killed. But they would not leave Tammy, their pilot, behind. They worked desperately to extract her from the helicopter. They, they carried her through fields uh, at great personal risk in order to, to get her out. And when they finally reached safety, they discovered, much to their amazement, that Tammy was still alive. She survived the ordeal, though she lost both of her legs. Tammy is now a U.S. senator. She just gave birth last April at the age of 50 to her second child, making her the very first senator in U.S. history to give birth while in office. But I love what she says about her rescue. I get up every day and I seek to live my life in such a way as to be worthy of that love and sacrifice. You see, that's the power of sacrificial love. 
And that's exactly what the beautiful cross inspires us to do. And so it means that you and I, we're most human when we both reflect humility and self-sacrifice. Lastly, Jesus' obedience. Jesus' obedience turns the ugliness of the cross into something beautiful. You see, folks, Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. When he was arrested, Peter rushed forward with his sword and he cut off the ear of of one of those who were arresting him. And Jesus said, Peter, put your sword back. Do you not think I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? Now, folks, one one legion, one Roman legion was about 6,000 men. And so Jesus is suggesting here that at a moment he could call forth from Gethsemane's shadow 72,000 angels to rescue him if he wanted to be rescued. Jesus was there in the darkness, was hardly defenseless. He didn't need Peter's errant sword. And here's the point of the story is that Jesus was not in the grip of the soldiers. Jesus was not in the grip of those who arrested him. Jesus was not in the grip of Herod or Pilate. Jesus was in the grip of God's will. At one point, Jesus said, How then would the Scripture be fulfilled that says it must happen in this way? You see, for Jesus, the Old Testament prophecies, those were his God-given commands. That's why he came. Again, it says in Isaiah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. For surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. So Jesus submitted to his captors out of obedience to God's will. Yes, Jesus died for our sin, but he also died from our sin. He died for our sin, bearing the guilt of our sin in our place. He was our sacrifice, but he also died from our sin, bearing the brunt of of human sin in this world, he was also sin's victim. You see, to be our sin sacrifice, he had to be sinless before God. But it wasn't enough for Jesus to be innocent, that is, untouched by sin. He also had to be righteous, that is, tempted by sin, and yet utterly obedient to God's will. Hebrews reminds us of this fact. In chapter 5, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard, listen, because of his reverent submission. For although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of, of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus' obedience gave us eternal life. God allowed 
evil, to touch all the sin buttons in the man Christ Jesus, to do all he could to provoke him to sin so no one could ever say his righteousness was easy or inadequate. Jesus was perfectly obedient to God. Now, obedience is a hard thing. A lot of you older football fans will remember Roger Staubach. Uh, did you know Roger grew up here in Cincinnati, uh, went to Purcell High School. He was a Heisman Trophy winner in college and went on to become a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys while Tom Landry was coach. He led the Dallas Cowboys to, to five Super Bowl games. The interesting thing is, is that Coach Landry never let Roger call his own plays, not once. And this was kind of a pride thing for Roger. He told Roger when to pass. He told him when to run. And only in emergency situations could he change the play. And even though Roger considered Coach Landry a a genius when it came to football strategy, uh, uh, Roger felt that he should be the one to call the plays. It was kind of a pride thing. But Roger went on to say this a few years later. He said, I faced up to this issue of obedience. And once I learned that, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory on the field. You see, we are most human when we reflect humility, self-sacrifice, and obedience. When I was in elementary school, and this was long before the days when gym teachers were sensitive about preserving uh, children's self-esteem, we would play kickball. And the gym teacher would pick two kids, usually the best athletes in our class, Uh, to be team captains. And then they would choose the teams. And it always went the same way. (laughs) The biggest, the fastest, strongest kids were chosen first. And then the kids who were weak, the kids who were not that coordinated, the kids who were small. And it went that way Every single time. What we discover today is God doesn't do it our way. And when God created this thing called the church, He flips it. And He did it the opposite way. That God takes the slow people, He takes the small people, He takes the uncoordinated people, He takes the weak people. And then if he needs to, he fills it in with a few talented people. That's not the way we think it should be. Jesus had everything. He had power. He had privilege. He had prerogative. And he gives it all up for us. He empties himself. He allows himself to be beaten, despised, and killed. Jesus was the last kid in class. And so when he forms this thing called the church, it's built on something totally different. 
And so the church is not built on, on the dominating, forceful, attractive people who convince others to do what they want them to do. The church is built on weakness. The church is built on self-sacrifice. The church is built on humility. The church is built on obedience. And it's built on the fact that there is only one place where we can all come together, and that's at the foot of the cross, the beautiful cross. Let's pray. God, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate Holy Communion, let us remember this beautiful cross and how on that cross you laid it all down for us and you took something ugly and you made it beautiful. God, do that with our lives as well, we pray. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.